Today, we're getting into the rough stuff. It was beautiful looking at Jesus. He's ready. We looked at the church. Is the church ready? But what we're going to be looking at today is the judgments of God upon the earth. And this is the heavy one. In fact, let me start out by reading. There was a prophetic word in the first service of, uh, of a, a picture of those is it defibrillators, those things if to get someone's heart going again. You like, But the picture was that it wasn't just hands. It was actually the word of God defibrillating hearts to get them beating again. And almost as the shock went, it went through the veins. And that's what we trust in God to do. And sometimes God's word is shocking. Sometimes we think and we hear and we read God's word and we think, God, I thought you were loving and gentle and kind, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, pouring out bowls of wrath. But sometimes we need the, Lord, we want to come alive. We want to know all of the word of God, not just the little bits that we pick and choose. So let's dive right into it. Revelation chapter 6. Let me read a portion. I wish I could read a whole lot of chapters today, but I've got some portions we're going to focus on. Verse number 12, I watched, this is John, this revelation in heaven, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Say yikes, yikes. The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 verse 26, he said it like this, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is the created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And I want to ask the question, most uh, Christians or writers or commentators would, would call what we're talking about today the great tribulation, a time of great testing or great shaking. The idea of shaking, we see in Scripture. God shakes things. Jesus, we heard it as a prophetic word, interestingly, this morning as well in the first service, about the wise and the foolish builder. Jesus said the wise man builds his house on the rock because when the wind and the waves, they beat against the house, but it stood firm. There came a shaking, but the Bible says we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we're going to be talking today, are you ready for this thing called the Great Tribulation? Actually, today is going to be a part one, because I'm going to be focusing today on the warning to the world. Next week, we're going to be looking at the encouragement to the church, because as I tell you what chapters we're looking at today, it's not just chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. No, no, there's a couple of chapters, but then there's a few chapters missing. It's almost as as we talk about the judgments of God, there's the encouragement to the church at the same time. Judgment encouraged church. Judgment encouraged church. So next week... Hopefully it will be easier. 
David Pawson, great uh, <clears throat> Bible theologian and commentator, he said this, this section is the heart of the book of Revelation and the most difficult to understand and apply. We are into the bad news. Things will get much worse before they get better. At least there is the comfort of knowing that the situation cannot ever be worse than what is foretold in these chapters. But that's bad enough. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. So we've called this journey Revelation Ready. But ready for what? What exactly do we need to be ready for? Well, as I'm talking about today and next week, ready for the great tribulation, the shaking that'll come to the earth. Ready then, secondly, for the return of Jesus, which I'm looking forward to preaching into that. Ready then, this is probably gonna be my favorite, maybe the most controversial. Ready for the millennium. What does it mean, Jesus, coming to reign on earth for a thousand years? Ready then for the final judgment. We need to understand and know about judgments. And then number five, ready for a new heaven and a new earth. These are the things that we need to know about and be ready for. So today, are we ready for the shaking of the great tribulation? Five questions. I've tried to simplify it, break it down. And I'm not expecting you to fully agree with all of my conclusions. I'm going to give you various options, the way different uh, people in the past, much cleverer than I, have, have given us various options of interpretation. But I'm not expecting you to agree with mine. These are the lessons I've taken out of the book of Revelation. What I am hoping is that you'll agree with the why, if not necessarily the what. Maybe you would see things different and that's fine. But I hope we agree on the why. Why is this important? So that we as a church are ready for whatever comes in the future. So let's tuck in. Question number one, what is the purpose of the great tribulation. Why would a loving God of mercy, kindness, gentleness, why would he send judgments upon the earth? Well, Jesus said this, and we read it in Matthew 24, verse eight. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. That's quite interesting. What do you mean birth pains? The picture we see right through the end times is a picture of a pregnancy and a birthing. Now, the first time Jesus came, he was literally birthed as the baby in a manger, but Jesus made it clear to his disciples when, they, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he said in the same way, the angel said in the same way you saw Jesus leave, that's how he's coming back. So when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as a baby in a manger. He's coming on his white horse. He's coming with the armies of heaven, with the saints departed, and he's gonna ride in victorious. But still the picture applies. These are the beginnings of birth pains. The second coming of Jesus, there's a pregnancy, it's like there's labor pains. And then at that moment of agony, the birthing, the, the return of Jesus into the world. And I want us to see that picture. I want us to remember that the end times have already started. When, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter two, Jesus had ascended. He poured out the Holy Spirit and Peter, he stood up and he preached in a loud voice and he quoted from the book of Joel. In Acts chapter two and verse 17, it says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. That happened. 
There was a day, you can, there's a calendar date. On that day, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the early church. And it says, in the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit. In other words, the last days have begun. But I want us to think. In other words, it's like the pregnancy has begun, and now we're waiting for the onset of labor pains for the return of Jesus. The next thing, wow, what's the purpose of the great tribulation? The judgments of God are to pour out the wrath of God on the nations in judgment. Now you think, oh God, isn't that harsh? Well, our God is loving, our God is forgiving, our God is just. And I want you to realize that for 2000, and we don't know when this is gonna start, but over all these years, God has been patient with the wickedness of man. He's been patient, he's been patient, he's been patient, he's been patient. Let the gospel go out, let the good news go out. And yet, this is still the kindness of God. If people will not listen to the kindness and love of God, then ultimately he sends now. The wrath of a just and holy God is poured out, still hoping that people will repent. There's still time. You haven't listened to the good times. Remember when Noah, before the flood came, for a hundred years Noah was preaching, repent, repent, repent. The ju- and then the flood came. In the same way, this is still the goodness of God hoping for a world that'll bow the knee to Jesus voluntarily before forcefully. In Revelation 6 verse 17, it says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? In Romans 1 verse 18, Paul the Apostle, he said this, he said, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And I'm sure you'll agree with me, the world is a wicked place. Yes, there's amazing people and there's pockets of goodness. But imagine what it must look like to a holy, righteous God who created us in His image, who destined us for glory and for goodness to see the wickedness of mankind. And yet He's been patient and patient and patient. The purpose of the Great Tribulation is the final warning. The wrath poured out in judgment on the nations in the hope that some will still repent. Question number two, when will the tribulation start? I've calculated it to two, no, I haven't calculated it. (laughs) Now I got you worried. (laughs) And let me warn you, if if you do hear of people predicting, don't believe it, because it's in scripture that the time and the date is unknown. So nope, I haven't got a date for you. What's interesting is, is the tension between the number of verses that predict a suddenness and the number of verses that predict signs that must be accomplished before the end. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Jesus said, therefore keep watch. You do not know on what day your Lord will come. 24, verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he's not aware of. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So there's this, there's this sense of caught unaware. And yet at the same time, there's a couple of signs that the Bible speaks about. For example, in Matthew 24 verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. As much as this is a suddenly, there's also some signs and How far has the gospel got? Well, different groups, organizations will give you different statistics. Bottom line is we've actually still got a big job to do. But interestingly, with technology and travel, the job can be done a whole lot quicker. 
So yep, we still try, I still believe there's unreached people groups around the world that need to hear the gospel. And some of you sitting here, God might lay it on your heart just to give up your life and say, right, I'm going to make way for the king and his kingdom. And we're seeing a younger generation of people passionate for Jesus. The easy nations have been reached. There's some hard nations that are calling. And some of you, God might burden your heart and put a passionate love for Jesus. Just say, Lord, if it costs me my life, I would rather go for the king in the kingdom. Another sign, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Paul said it like this, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 24, 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation. In other words, some kind of wicked, adulterous, I mean, idolatrous, that's the word I'm looking for, symbol, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Let then, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What he's talking about is in the holy of holies, someone else is being set up as a, as a messiah. It's what it's talking here as Paul was saying, the man of lawlessness, we'll read next week about this, this antichrist. In other words, before Jesus comes, there'll be a false Jesus. Someone who might look smiley on the outside and make big promises, but actually is inspired by the enemy. And we'll study a bit more about that next week. It seems to speak of a world leader who sets himself up to be worshipped. Another sign in Romans eleven twenty five, Paul said this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part, <clears throat> excuse me, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. What's that saying? <clears throat> what Paul was saying is as much as Jesus is a Jew, Jesus came as part of the Jews, but it almost like the Jewish nation hardened their heart to believe in Jesus so that the gospel focused on the Gentiles. But what Paul was saying is, but wait, before Jesus returns, actually the gospel will be accepted by the Jews as well. So these are just some of the signs. The gospel must reach all nations. There'll be this antichrist who arises. We'll see more Jews turning to Jesus. So how do we balance? These signs must be fulfilled, but you'll come like a thief in the night. Well, once again, for me, the only way of really bringing them together is that same picture of the pregnancy. When you're pregnant, you see the signs that are taking place, ladies, I'm sure, in your body. You see the growing belly, and you can realize the weeks are passing. You can read all the signs that the birth is imminent, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, labor pains. I think in the same way, we, we bring these two things together. There will be the signs that we see being fulfilled, but at the same time, it'll come as a suddenly. When exactly this tribulation will begin, we don't know. We live in the tension of these two truths. The tribulation could start any time. We live fully anticipating the imminent return of Jesus. We recognize the partial fulfillment of these signs. We believe they will, will be fulfilled, could be fulfilled quickly in our lifetime. And so, we do not know when the great tribulation begins, but we live with a sense of readiness. Amen. Question number three, big one, <clears throat> controversial one. Okay, if there's a, a great tribulation coming, well, Christians have to be part of it. And this is an area of great speculation. I want to read and share kind of the options and tell you what I believe. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 
verses 14 to 18, Paul wrote this. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Not in church, in him. Verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Sure. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it sounds amazing. What it speaks about here is the coming of the Lord, his second coming, his return. And he comes with a heavenly host. It seems that he comes with the spirits of all those Christians, those in Christ, and they come back with Jesus. And elsewhere in Corinthians, it speaks in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we changed from a mortal to an immortal body. You get that glorious new body. We'll look at that in two weeks' time. And it says, those who are left will be caught up with him in the air. Apparently the picture that's used here is the beautiful picture of, for example, King David. When he went out and fought a battle and conquered the Philistines, when they returned to the city of David, the women, the children, all those maybe who were older or not part of the army, they would leave the city, they would go out into the streets to form a welcoming committee so that as the king returns, they then join in the triumphant procession and walk into the city together. And in some ways, that's the picture given right here. As Jesus comes back, we get to be part of that second coming. And I'd love to be part of that. I'm dreaming Superman right here. I'm just picturing joining Jesus in the air. I love flight. I love airplanes. I'd love to do it without an airplane. I can just imagine joining with Jesus in the air as he comes. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, But each in turn Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The coming of the Lord, Jesus, now here's where it gets controversial, follows the great tribulation. We, we see that. Now, one of the, the doctrines, theories that many of you would have heard about, and some of you may believe, and I'm not fighting you on that, is what we call the rapture theory. And the traditional rapture theory is that before the tribulation, Christians are raptured, taken to heaven, so that they don't go through the great tribulation. That's a possibility, but I have some concerns. Concern number one is that it's, it's actually a very new, church history speaking, it's a very new doctrine. It was only in 1827 that this thinking first came about, that before the great tribulation, Jesus takes the saints away to heaven. And that's been popularized in, in books and movies, Left Behind and The Thief in the Night. And, and part of us loves that because if the going gets tough, we're out of here. I've got a concern. It's Secondly, it's, it's inconsistent in some ways with the parallel story of when Jesus took the Israelites out of Egypt. Before they came out of Egypt, first the plagues. Remember the hail and the frogs and the, uh, all of darkness and all of those things. Jesus didn't take them out, he protected them in. And then at the end, he took them out and Moses led them to the promised land. Other concern is that it would in some ways mean Jesus has to come back twice. He has to come back 
So the Christians join him in the air. Then he has to go back to heaven. Then the tribulation. And then he has to come back again. Does that make sense? So in some ways, I'm not fighting anyone on this. But here's, here's my big idea. If I'm wrong, that's okay. When the going gets tough, I'm out of here. I'm part of it. My concern, our concern as elders, is the fruit of that doctrine can mean we don't need, as Christians, to learn how to stand strong in difficult times. If our thinking and belief system is before things get tough, we're out of here. It sounds good, but I'm, I would rather we prepare to actually live through this. That means we're going to need a faith that can withstand bad news and trouble and fires and protests and COVID and whatever comes in the future. Without giving up on God, without giving into panic, without becoming a media, just sending out all kinds of terror. No, no, we stand strong, assured because Jesus is with us. So that's why for me, it would be better. I believe this and I'd rather we lead the church with that in mind. God, help us to raise generations of Christians, moms, dads, raise your kids with a faith that can stand on the rock so that when the wind and the waves beat against that house, it stands firm because it's rooted in Christ. Question number four then is how long will the great tribulation last? Another great question. Now, some would believe that in fact the tribulation's been happening right from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There have been wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. They have. And at any particular time in history, somewhere in the world, in regions, some of these things are taking place. But what the great tribulation seems to point towards is not happening in isolated regions, but happening globally at the same time. And that hasn't happened yet. Great tribulation seems to point to a universal, simultaneous, short duration time of intense testing. Now, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So in other words, it seems to speak specifically about a short season of great tribulation. How long is that season? We can speculate. Revelations 12 verse 6, and we're going to look at this next week. The woman, speaking about the church, I believe, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days, which all of you, I'm sure, know is three and a half years. Revelations 13 verse 5, the beast, speaking about that antichrist leader, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months which as you know is three and a half years. Daniel chapter seven, verse 25, who had this apocalyptic vision hundreds of years before Jesus, he wrote about this uh, abomination, this antichrist figure. And he said in verse 25, he will speak against the most high and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time which translators have always struggled. What is a time, times, and half a time? Most would suggest it would be a year, two years, and half a year. Three and a half years. So there seems to indicate a time of three and a half years of intense tribulation. Is it an exact time or is it a symbolic time? It's open for speculation. It seems to be a restricted time, but it does seem to be a specific time. Which leads us then to question number five. What's it going to be like? <laughs> Wake up one morning, 
tribulation starts. <laughs> okay, what do we expect, Lord? What's it actually going to be like if we get to live through this, or our children or grandchildren live through this? What do the judgments of Revelation point to? As I said, I'm not going to look at all the chapters, but I'm going to pull out And part of your reading guide, and if you haven't downloaded that reading guide, I'd love you to do that. The focus will be chapters 6, 8, 9, 15, and 16, where basically it speaks about three sets of judgment that are poured out upon the earth. And the three are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls of God's wrath. And let me take you through those three. So they start off with seven seals. Seals, remember Jesus was given a scroll. Who's worthy to unfold the scroll? The end of church history, I mean of human history as we know it. And only Jesus was found worthy, but that scroll to bring about the end was sealed with seven seals. And the first seal was broken, then the second, and each one corresponded to a different judgment. Let me give you an example in Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. That's one example. They call him the four horsemen of the apocalypse because the first four seals represent four horses which are released. Interesting, the first one's white, which we think surely that's purity. Nope, it looks like purity, but it's not. First thing Jesus said, watch out, you don't get deceived. And the first one seems to be deception. Looks white, pure, but actually it's got a different motive. The second horse was a red horse, which represent war. Jesus said, beware, there will be wars and rumors of wars. The third horse is a black horse, which speaks about famine. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, said Jesus. The fourth horse was a pale, kind of greenish, kind of vomity looking horse. And it speaks about disease, plagues that follow after famine and war. And you can almost see how these would lead into one another. What if there was this deception? And around the world, I think people's perspectives, especially around the major religions, in this world of tolerance, is actually turning against more and more. And what if deception came into the world more and more and people began to hate other religions, Christians, etc. Could lead to wars. Wars lead to famine. Famine leads to disease. The fifth seal then is the saints in heaven saying, how long, Lord? How long? What did Jesus say? And this gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. And then the sixth seal, a great earthquake. And then the seventh, silence, followed by a mighty earthquake. These are then followed by the seven trumpets. In Revelation 8, verses 6 and 7, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. Is that literal from heaven, hail and blood? Or is it something steeped in volcanic disruption, which happens when you get massive earthquakes? We don't know. It could be. A third of the earth was burnt up. A third of the trees were burnt up. And all the green grass was burnt up. Let me read those seven trumpets. Scorched earth we read about. Number two, a polluted sea. Three, contaminated water. Four, reduced sunlight. Five, insects and plagues. That's one of the weirdest ones. 
We said these locust looking creatures come out of the ground and, and, and for five months it even gives. We don't know what that looks like. Is it some kind of real insect? Is it a drone? I don't know. Who knows what it's like for, for, for John trying to see these pictures and write about them before he had any idea of technology. The sixth one speaks about an, an invasion, most likely an oriental invasion coming from the east. It actually gives a number, 200 million warriors. And then the seventh, the kingdom comes, the world is taken over by Jesus after a severe earthquake. Then you get the seven bowls. Revelation 16, one and two says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. That was number one. Number two, blood in the sea. Three, blood from the springs. Four, burning by the sun. Five, darkness. Six, the mighty battle of Armageddon. And then seven, hailstones, storm, and a severe earthquake leading to international collapse. Say yikes. (laughs) Some of these judgments seem to be natural disasters. Other than seem to be man-made in terms of wars and economic oppression. Many of them look a lot similar. When you put the lists together, a lot of them look very similar to what happened when the Israelites came out of Egypt. What there also seems to be is an acceleration and intensification. They seem to start off slower and then you seem to get more intense. Which brings us to another question which many have speculated. Is it first the seals, then we have the trumpets, then we have the bowls? Possibly. But what's very interesting is if we look at the seventh of each, remember seven is always fulfillment and conclusion and completeness. Let me give you the seventh seal, Revelation 8 verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Here's the seventh trumpet in Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder and earthquake and a severe hailstorm. And here's the seventh bowl in Revelation sixteen eighteen. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. You notice something? Kind of all pretty much the same, aren't they? So then the speculation might be maybe they're not successive, but maybe they're simultaneous. Maybe at the same time, all three of them are being poured out. Or maybe, which is probably the option, the third option, which I would think makes most sense to me, it seems there's six and then a gap. And six and then a gap. Maybe they like labor pains. Maybe they're the first six of those seals, but before the seventh come six of those trumpets, but before the seventh come six of those bowls, and then the sevenths come together. Because as they got more intense, it's almost like contractions, slower, and then more intense, and then very intense until the end comes. Am I right? Am I wrong? That's one of the options. There's three options. Does it really matter? The why matters the most. There will be times of testing, but the order is not as important as the readiness. So now take a deep breath. So this is what the Bible predicts for the future. The question we want to land in today is how 
are we supposed to prepare ourselves for something like that? If we got to live through that, or our children or our grandchildren, or if they got to live through that, how do you do it? Well, let me read the good news. I love what Isaiah said. Isaiah, who prophesied about Jesus so many times. And in the final chapter of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, thousands of years before the great tribulation, he said this in Isaiah 66, verses 14 to 16. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. Now listen to this. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. Isn't that amazing? Imagine, listen to the rest of it. It says, see, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. But remember, the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. Imagine living through a season, you look around at a world in chaos, out of control, and yet what you're actually seeing is the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord to keep you. It says, you will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. This might be the most amazing spiritual season of our lives. Lord, we want to live under your gracious hand. As you reveal your hand to us, you're revealing your wrath to our foes. What's it going to take? Number one, it means we are going to need to be fully assured that Jesus knows how to take care of his own. Not, not a head knowledge, but a deep, heartfelt conviction. Not someone who plays church on a Sunday, not someone who comes from a Christian family, but someone who carries a personal revelation. Jesus knows how to take care of his people. In Revelation 3 verse 10, it says, Since you have kept my command and endured patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The Jesus that we know and serve and love knows how to take care of his own. Though the world might crumble and fall at Jesus, we can find rest in you. Number two, we're going to need to be fully assured that the world might be shaken, but God's love and faithfulness will never be shaken. Maybe God will be pouring out wrath on the world, but his love for his sons and daughters, his compassion and his mercy will never be shaken Isaiah, once again, in Isaiah 54, verse 10, he said, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Imagine being able to walk through this with peace. God, we are covenantally connected. The God of peace is my Lord. In Psalm 46, verses 8 to 11, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the midst of that, be still, be still. And these get tested. Even for some of you, last night was a testing. You're getting messages and and fires are coming and houses are burning. Be still and know that I am God. And then lastly, to land where we began, we build our lives on the unshakable kingdom of God. Hebrews 12, 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? It doesn't say we've received the kingdom. We've received our salvation. But it says we're receiving a kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That means the best thing we could do to prepare for a shaky future is build an unshakable now. Build for unshakability. Give you an example. I don't know what economic situations are going to look like in the future. Next week, we're going to talk about marks of the beast. Can you buy? Can you sell? Can your business handle if you're not da-da-da? Who knows? But this is what I know. If you've built your finance on the world, lots of debt, pay off everything, you might be in for a very shaky time. If you've built your finance on the kingdom of God, generosity, giving, receiving, integrity, then you can face an uncertain future with security because God's kingdom cannot be shaken. If you've built your marriage, yeah, sleep around, I've got this happening, this happening, this happening, everyone does it. No, the world does it, not in the kingdom. Because in the kingdom, we build with faithfulness and purity and honor. That means your marriage can withstand when things collapse and things go wrong. If we build on the kingdom, it cannot be shaken. And I want to challenge in every area of our lives, what this means is we can't play at being Christians. Either we're in or we're out. Either we're serious and take God at his word and build according to his kingdom, or we might be shown for what it is when shaking reveals our true hearts. May God strengthen us. Lord, we want to walk through with a calm assurance with our eyes on the king.